This is Caregiver's Compass, an uplifting podcast all about the ins and outs of caregiving for a loved one. Tips, tricks, true stories, and experts. It's all here on Caregiver's Compass. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Caregiver's Compass. My name is Stephanie Muscat. I am a registered social worker and psychotherapist. Please note that this episode is not the act of psychotherapy. This episode is a continuation. Part one was aired last week, and this is part two. So if you haven't heard part one, go listen to that first and then head on back over for the second part. I wanted to touch on COVID and how COVID has impacted the supports that have been available for these children and these families. I imagine there has been, you know, a reduced ability to provide certain supports. Maybe it's gotten better, but what have you seen in the realm of COVID and how that has impacted these children and families? Well, we're all adjusting almost on a weekly, daily basis, but certainly at the beginning of COVID, it was a disaster. I mean, the the parents were working from home, kids weren't able to attend their therapy appointments, or in some cases, even go to school because there were lockdowns. And it was very, very stressful for families. You know, as, as time went on, the, you know, the therapy centers and schools obviously opened back up, but that's a, that's a, you know, one day they're there and next day something, you know, there's an outbreak and they're at home again. Mm-hmm. There have been not only challenges for the kids, because of course they're not benefiting from the social stimulation that they need. Their brains are growing. They're lonely. They're isolated. They can't see their friends or be with their friends. They're anxious. But also, it's been really, really hard on the on the parents themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've been working with a um, now with the parents of, of older, like not their twenty, their twenty one plus year olds, and uh, and the programs that they were attending, the employment programs or the day centers, shut, they were shuttered. Mm-hmm. Um, they're back now, and you know therapies are happening again. But, you know, here we here we go again. There's another wave coming. And what is it going to look like? So people are still very cautious. Yeah, this is an avenue that's not talked about, you know, publicly at all. And, you know, you hear about, oh, the parents have to have the kids home from school. But you think about those kids being fully functioning, you know, to whatever degree they're independent, depending on their age. But you don't think about the parents who have then had to give up, you know, a huge part of their work life because they're at home and then they have to navigate children who have special needs. I mean, that's a whole other kettle of fish. And I can't even imagine what those parents have had to go through. It's, it's, it's been been hard. I mean, I'm, I'm, I know this word is overused, um, you know, but I am super impressed by, you know, what, what, what parents have to do. Mm-hmm. even, you know, as their kids are in their 20s and 30s and, right. and are still living at home. In fact, that's kind of been my, what the project that, that's navigation project that we're working on now here in Montreal has really brought, I would say, revealed the plight 
of aging parents, parents who are getting older, who have 20 something, 30 something, 40 something year olds at home with them mm-hmm. who are not um, in programs. Hmm. Yeah. I would say this is a tsunami that is about to happen and it is invisible. Yep. They're, they're in here in, in Quebec, the, um, the responsibility for house finding housing, um, appropriate housing for people with, uh, with, um, disabilities falls into the, uh, sec- the health and social services sector. And there's been no movement on that for a number of years, no new housing opening up. And, you know, we're just so talk about, I'm, I'm just in the process of finalizing some drafts of, of policy briefs on this actually mm-hmm. to be submitted to the government to to say you, you I mean we don't even have a good way of saying how many there are because we we can't they're not counted and so if they're not counted how you how can you take into account what their yeah. needs are yeah yeah and how can an elderly parent take care of you know a 40 something year old uh individual who is very high needs I mean and I there's just no plan no plan. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. But again, think of, um, we have to think about this. No plan that I'm aware of, at least. We have to think about this in, you know, as a, I, I don't know what it's like in other provinces. Other provinces may be doing a better job than, than um, maybe further along in thinking. I know in Alberta, there, there, there's some pretty creative things that are happening at the Foundation around housing, but um, I, I just don't see it here. And uh yeah. It's going to be a lot of explosions in many different areas, for mm-hmm. sure. And mm-hmm. I think this pandemic has highlighted a lot of the gaps and a lot of everything that was kind of shoved under the rug in a way that it cannot be ignored anymore in so many different areas. Mm-hmm. And it's very lucky for these families and these children to have people like you and researchers like you and you know policymakers who are really looking deep down at the best interests of these families and their children to see what they need, because you're not going to get that from the broader, you know, spectrum and people sitting in the house of commons, like you're just not going to get that. And so thank, thank goodness for people like you uh, who exist and who advocate I know we spoke before, but you had your own experiences as a caregiver. And so I wanted to touch on that a little bit because I'm sure you could pull from your caregiving experiences, although maybe different, and relate to the families that you work with and empathize with the families that you work with. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences as a caregiver? Yeah, certainly. I my mother passed away about a, almost a year ago now, but she was living in southern Ontario, and I'm living here in Montreal, and my brother's living in Vancouver. So she was very much alone in her, in still living in in her house, and had a slow deterioration in her cognitive function. And at, as soon as I could, you know, after COVID started, and I and the you know COVID started when what February March. And I think I arrived at her house in Southern Ontario in June mm-hmm. and really found that her cognitive function had had crashed. But she wasn't willing to leave her house. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had tried to get her into in you know residential kind of residential setting where there would be more supervision. 
but she refused. And so you can't take a person out of their house screaming. Um, So I knew that there was going to be something that would happen. There would be some kind of critical incident. And if I was fortunate for the critical incident to happen while I was there. Hmm. And uh, she, she actually was sitting out in the backyard while I was on a zoom meeting and I went and found her and she was, I thought she was asleep and she wasn't asleep. So I called the ambulance and she had suffered uh, some, a, a sunstroke, but they realized and, you know, when I said to them, look, it's not taking her medications. There's probably been a fire because the, there, something had melted onto the stove. And the hospital took a stand. I mean, I really give them a lot of credit. And they took the decision out of my hands in some ways and said, she can't go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was that, you know, so we, my brother and I kicked into high gear at that point to find a place for her to go to. And we were very fortunate to find a home in Mississauga that um that she could go to that she spoke polish so it was Mm -hmm. a place that was polish and and we took her straight from the hospital to to um to this home so it's you know it's as a dog i guess it's it's not directly related to working with kids with disabilities but the caregiver experience of somebody who's trying to look after an aging parent at a distance Mm -hmm. doing you know I think that's the story here is it's you know I had daily contact with her and did the best that I could at a distance but it just wasn't the same I mean we make decisions to leave leave and work in a different province these are some of the the consequences that you don't really appreciate at the time well Uh, good thing you were there but I mean it's just it's so common right because we have to go and and live where the trajectory of our lives take us and our parents are living longer and longer. And therefore, you know, it comes with a whole array of medical issues and cognitive decline and physical decline that I think, you know, our societies haven't really seen before with the increase of travel. That's a really good point. Very, very good point. In fact, we were just talking, this came up recently, this discussion mm-hmm. in relation to young adults who are in, in the province of Quebec, they're called polyhandicapé. So they they have multiple impairments. They mm-hmm. may be cognitively impaired. They may have a G-tube. They may be trached. They may be in a wheelchair. You know, they have high needs. And the services and supports are not that great for them. Mm-hmm. And and I think the problem is that they, they're living longer and the services and supports haven't adapted to that reality. Yeah. And so we're now, they're now living into their thirties and their forties. Yep. Uh, and so we really need to think deeply about how to maintain a life of quality for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, thank goodness for medicine that people are living longer and able to live longer, but yeah, our systems are not prepared in any way. And in fact, I find, and I'm sure you find the same thing, that our health systems kind of react once a crisis has hit. And it's not so much a preemptive planning, but more so, well, when we don't have a choice, that's when we're going to react because we're not going to put the dollars into planning. And so that's, that's a big issue that I see as well. It's, 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 you know, I've, I've actually tried to get, because I mean, where do these individuals end up when their, their, you know, their parents or their siblings can no longer look after them? Because often it does fall on siblings, actually. Uh, They end up in the ER. Of course. And how much is it, how much is a per diem in, in a hospital these days? Well, it's it's over a thousand dollars a night. 
but actually yeah. closer to six. Six? Okay. Well, well, where I am, they tell us it's over a thousand. Is that, oh, that's interesting. Is it? Yeah, I, I've I, never I, heard the six. Maybe that's in Quebec. Yeah. I don't know. That's yeah, what for, I've been told. For <laughs> us, what I was told. For us, the per diem rate, because sometimes we have had to charge families, is something like 1500 or something like that, depending on the day. It changes all the time, but 6000 is insane. I mean, 1500 is also insane, but it, it is, it's, it's a complete waste of money and resources but the, but the issue here is how do you get that story out right? right so i went to the person that manages the data and uh at the hospital to say is there a way that i can find out how many people are seen in the er mm-hmm. with disabilities where this is part of the issue is that the parents are saying that they can no longer care for for this individual we don't have the data course and so it ends up being anecdotal right it ends up being you know some this parent left this child you know at the whatever the mall or in front of the hospital I mean it ends up being this kind of drama really that unfolds in the papers as opposed to really yeah uh, you know appreciating the scope and the nature of the problem Yeah. I mean, I can tell you I work, so I work in a transitional facility where the hospital will send their non-acute patients to us to then figure out discharge. And in the past year, I mean, it doesn't seem like a big number, but it is a big number. We've had at least four young individuals. And when I say young, I mean in their forties who just could not, their parents could not take care of them at home and they didn't know what to do with them. And they had some sort of a developmental delay and, you know, they were very cognitively intact people. They just could not care for themselves. And we had to look at them and say, okay, long-term care. Like that is the only option that we have for these people. And so then those people would sit with us and they would be surrounded by people in their 90s with, you know, dementia and cognitive decline who are exit seeking. And we have programming for the elderly. And these 40-year-olds would just be going to these programs. This doesn't suit them. And then they're going to these nursing homes. And there's nothing else that we can provide to them. And I mean, there were some group homes that we had looked into, but there was no availability. And especially with COVID, they weren't really accepting a lot of people. There were a lot of restrictions in place and it was, it's, it's a problem. And four is too many people. It, it is yeah. because then they're going to these long-term care homes and what is their quality of life going to be like there? I mean, some people felt like they were being abandoned, but I don't think they were being abandoned. Their families just could not give them the care. They couldn't, the families were falling apart on their own, you know, nine, 80, 90 year old parents. How can they do it? Yeah. So I've seen it myself. I mean, certainly the, the in the research, one of the one of the aspects of caregiver lives that I have documented is caregiver health. Mm-hmm. So the we looked at some data from the National Longitudinal Study of Children and Youth in Canada, and 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 this came out. You know, caregivers of kids. You know, back to talking about kids who have some kind of a neurodevelopmental diagnosis. And behavior problems because, and many, you know, a good chunk of their, their rates of behavior problems among people with neurodisabilities are higher than in the general Mm -hmm. population uh, or the neurotypical population. Those caregivers have the worst health themselves, Mm -hmm. but they have the worst physical health 
the worse mental health, mm -hmm. the more sort of challenging family environments, higher rates of separation and divorce. It's an important yeah. piece to pay attention yeah. to. Yeah. And all of that makes sense. But, you know, we have to do better. Lucy, it's been a pleasure. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about what you're doing? Reach out to Great say hello. Great question. So we're actually, I mean, you can find me at McGill on, 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 under the School of Social Work uh, or the Center for Research on Children and Families. We're also building a new website on the, on the navigation work. And some of our stuff will be featured there. BCCNDI, Building Community Capacity for Neurodiverse Individuals. Nice. Uh, okay. www.bccndi. So it's we're building the website. It should be up and running soon. Great. Thank you, Lucy, for your work and your insight and really for shedding a light on these areas that are just not talked about enough. Thank you for having me. I appreciate me. it. I really, I really appreciate it too. <laughs> Bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening to Caregiver's Compass. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. I'm Stephanie Muscat. Have an uplifting day and I'll see you next time.